you want to um, turn or, I guess, tap your ways uh, in your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be uh, beginning in verse 13. It's so quiet. This is why we need more physical Bibles. If you guys have never heard a room of Bibles, there we go. There they are. You're not holier, but you, you might be, actually. Um, well, while you're tapping your way there or uh, turning for the, the, the saints, um, last week, uh, over the past few weeks, what we've been looking at, um, as we've been looking in this letter of 1 Peter, is, um, in fact, what is this uh, ancient document, this ancient letter? Uh, where the Apostle Peter, who was a, a church leader, was uh, writing letters uh, to these uh, various churches spread around modern-day Turkey. And in these letters, uh, he was seeking to help them figure out what it means to follow Jesus in uh, cities like Bithynia. Uh, cities like, what are some of the other ones? Cappadocia is my uh, favorite. Uh, to Asia, Pontus, Galatia, these modern-day Turkey, these cities, these new Christians who had come out of, of either um, paganism, following some other god, or um, a dead uh, a Judaism that now, is, this, they, both sides have brought this new life in the work that Jesus is doing uh, for them and in them. And they're kind of going, this Jesus guy is great. What does it mean to follow him right here and right now in Bithynia? Uh, it's a question that many of us find ourselves uh, wrestling with. I love this Jesus guy. I love the Bible, singing songs. This is great. Um, I love Sundays. I love what we're doing right here. Um, what about Wednesday at three in the afternoon? What, is, what does that look like for me? And so that's what this letter is really wanting to invite us into as a way of considering what that looks like. And so what we saw last week uh, in those verses uh, of 3 through 12, the Apostle Peter didn't start off by going, okay, you want to follow Jesus? Here's what it looks like. And he starts you know, breaking down the Ten Commandments or something like that. What was interesting is what we saw is he actually just retold the story that for many of us who are followers of Jesus, we know this story. It wasn't inherently anything new. He was just restating the work that God has done in Jesus Christ of saving and healing and redeeming a broken uh, but beautiful world and bringing it back in us into what we were meant to be. He just spent the opening of his letter telling us the story that it feels like we already knew. And it's a strange story that, as we saw, he jumps around from the future to the present to the past, talking about how this salvation, this work of God, is something that, is, uh, that will happen in the future. It is presently happening in the present, and it already has happened somehow in the past. Uh, as David Tennant's uh, iteration of Doctor Who says, uh, things get timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. Uh, when the eternal creator God enters into humanity to save us, there's this weird, somehow it's already uh, but not yet, the salvation work that God's doing. And, and why Peter starts with this story is because he understands the power of story, the power of narrative. Why start the letter here? It's because he understands this. Uh, Bobette Buster um, uh, says, uh, nature is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. Uh, human beings, you and I, we are narrative creatures, uh, we long for and crave a story in which we can situate ourselves. And so Peter has opened his letter because he understands this, that you and me, we are looking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for a, a beginning and an end through which we situate ourselves. And so why Peter started with a story, it's not just because he's like, well, I guess I'll remind them of this gospel thing. That seems like a great place to start. He understands that before we can ever move into what it means to follow Jesus, we need a deep 
saturation in, oh yes, this is the story that I'm a part of. This salvation that has happened, will happen, and, and is presently happening. We are narrative creatures. Whereas you and me uh, like to believe that you and I are autonomous individuals, this idea that, um, that we are free to make whatever decisions that we want, uh, to wear whatever clothes and go after whatever work and live in whatever city, uh, that's the narrative. You're an autonomous being. You, can, you have all the freedom in the world to make the decisions that you want. Simply is not true. You and I are shaped and crafted by the stories that we hear and we understand about ourselves. Now, this can happen at an early age, stories that we hear from mom and dad about what the world is and who we are, where purpose is. This can come in a great form of setting us up for a life, and it can become uh, desperate trauma early on when abusive words are spoken over us. That becomes the story of how we internalize ourselves. The story of a girl who hears, or, or even a guy that hears, that I am not lovable over the course of their life will live into a way that is not lovable because that's who they believe they are. And so Peter starts with a story because he understands that we need a shaping story, one that's better than this. Specifically, as you've been looking at, as exiles, people that are living in a city that is our home but isn't our home, this picture of Babylon, of this ancient, big, giant empire that we find ourselves in, he uses this language, is, um, it's not just the stories that we hear from mom and dad, it's literally uh, as soon as we open our eyes and open our phones in the morning that we are um, bombarded by alternate stories of who we are and what works in this world. Some of you, those of you in advertising, you know this, that the best advertisements are not like, drink Coke, it's better than Pepsi. It's not like the tagline, although that's true. Um, that <laughs> Pepsi's disgusting. Um, uh, although that is, that is true, advertising, there's been a change uh, within uh, just a, a, a handful of decades where we've moved from advertisements being like that. Coke, it's refreshing, and it'll, you know, it gives you the sugar, you know, whatever. Uh, that's what a weird time. Obviously, I'm not advertising. Uh, um, we moved from that, like the Ford, this pickup, because this is, this is its miles per gallon, all that kind of stuff. That goes to the outside now. And what gets sent forward is stories. So we sell a pickup truck with, you know, the, this advertisement, God made a farmer, right? And everybody goes, yeah, that's who I am. Coca-Cola now, it's no longer better than Pepsi. But it's, you watch all the people smiling, and having a good time. Oh, there's a, there's a story here. And the difference between my story and, and that story that I'm watching is that they have Coca-Cola. And so what I need is I need to go out and buy Coca-Cola. If you don't believe me, this week, as you walk around and you make decisions and you think about things, when you get dressed in the morning, as you make purchases, what story are you entering into with each of those things? And you are. And it's going to be really, really weird to start doing that. Like, I was going to the store, and I'd get toothpaste. And I was looking at the toothpaste thing, and I was, I was using this little practice of just thinking about what, what's, what am I wanting behind my wanting? What am I desiring behind my desiring? What story is here? And I realized that as I'm looking at toothpaste, I'm not looking for, like, which one's, like, you know, nine, you know, ten doctors out of whatever, you know? I'm looking at, like, the design of it. I'm looking at the aesthetics. I want it to be natural, but not so natural that it doesn't work, Right? <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm wanting to go in this. I want to be the sort of person that this is the toothpaste that Ryan uses. I'm the sort of person that, that values as, as aesthetics, that when Ryan, you know, wears the clothes that he wears and the shoes that he wears, that there's, we're all bringing in a story of how we understand ourselves in all of these decisions, which is terrifying. 
Because what that means is that you are not an autonomous being. You are at the whim, for good or bad, of the stories that you believe about yourself. And so why Peter starts this letter is he's inviting us to, let's just remind ourselves of the story, of what's true about you before we move on uh, to, to practice. And so uh, another way of, of saying this, um, uh, Alice Dare McIntyre is a Scottish philosopher, of course, with a name like that. Uh, he says this, uh, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part? So last week was Peter saying, this is the story that you find yourself a part of. And this week is now we're moving into, so then what do we do with that information? A lot of this letter is now he's moving into the practical. How do we follow Jesus in Rome, in Bithynia, in LA, wherever you are? How do I follow Jesus at work, in my home? What does this look like? Peter reminds us and started, spent time here. I don't want to breeze past this with reminding us of the story that salvation will happen. It is happening. It has happened in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So before we move on, we have to see that because our stories set the scripts for our lives. And so we need to come back to the ancient author, and Peter knows this, to remind us of what story we find ourselves in, and then now we move into what we do with that. What, what part do we play? What role do we have as the actors and actresses in the story that God is telling? Let's read verses 13 through 2-3, where the apostle Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. <clears throat> Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So then, put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long or crave for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen. And so what we see within Peter's letters, as he moves from last week, the story of hope that we have in Jesus Christ, is now he moves into what it looks like for this to be the sort of story we find ourselves. And so the way that you can break this down um, is this. Hope looks like holiness, looks like love. Uh, hope in verse 13 looks like holiness, 14 through 21 looks like love from 22 uh, to the beginning of chapter two there, verse three, that hope, the hope that we have, what it looks like in our lives is holiness, and holiness looks like love. 
So for all of us here, as we uh, look at our conduct, as Peter writes, as the way of life that we live, uh, Peter lays out for us, uh, not only for us to hear an invitation, but even a command for us to walk in a way that is holy, in a way that is loving, that as that scrapes against you, and it will, if it hasn't already, that you might ask yourself, what story do I hold that, that is causing this to scratch up against me, to go against the grain of, of the stories that I believe? Who am I? What story do I believe about myself? What is my hope? And in light of that, how then shall I live? Specifically, for those of you that are here that are Christians, in particular, when we think of this language of hope, when we think about faith and trust in Jesus, this whole thing, uh, oftentimes uh, we place in the first, mar- first marker of faith as either like a doctrinal statement that we signed off on or some internal personal experience that we had at like Bible camp when we were 13. And we go, oh, what is my faith? What is my hope? What does that look like? Or what's the thing there? As we place it in different things, some doctrinal statements, some church attendance records, some here's my tithe or whatever from the past year. All those things are great. We all love Bible camp, and I'm so happy that you went. But what Peter, he connects to what hope looks like is it looks like, it looks like holiness. And this challenges and presses against us. That the first thing is not theological assent to some truth or internal spiritual feelings. It is a holiness that shows up and shows itself in love. And so why don't we just zoom in now on a couple of these verses. Let's see this. First, where he begins is once again in hope. Look with me in verse 13 where he says, therefore, uh, Bible nerd note, uh, whenever you're reading the Bible, you see the word therefore, just pause and ask. Does anybody know? You guys got it. This is great. We just saved so much time. Um, <laughs> He says, whenever, whenever you read the Bible and you're confused, you're like, I don't know where I'm going. If you see the word therefore, just pause. What's it there for, right? Cheesy, but you'll remember it like so many of you have. Uh, and so what this does in seeing this therefore is verse 13. He's opening going, therefore, on account of verses 1 through 12. Specifically in verse 11, where he's bringing out to light this salvation that the prophets pointed to about the Son of God, the Messiah, who would enter into sufferings and be raised to subsequent glories. He's saying, therefore, in light of the salvation story, what God is doing in this world, therefore, do what? He says, prepare your minds for action. Now, this is incredible. Um, because maybe if you have your Bible out, you'll have a little footnote next to preparing your minds for action. And if you jump down, you'll sh- it'll show that in the Greek, what's literally being, what, what uh, Peter wrote is not like prepare your minds for action. He wrote, gird up the loins of your mind. It's like, cool, Peter. <laughs> Thank you guys for translating into preparing because that doesn't make any sense. So uh, Peter, he's writing at a time when um, jeans didn't exist yet. Um, when you wore big cloaks, right? Um, and so whenever you were getting ready, either for hard work, labor, moving things, um, or even for warfare, uh, you would gird up your loins. Now, what this meant is you took the bottom of your, uh, your, your cape. It's not a cape. They're not superheroes. What am I thinking of? The, the, your well, cloak, your thing. Um, you guys know what I mean. Come on. Uh, so you take the bottom of it, and you'd push it between your legs, pull it back up from the top, and then you would tie it together. And so the whole thing is you went from like, you know, I can't imagine just like legs. Uh, But um, the whole idea is you were um, tying up anything that would get in the way from hard work, right? Like the worst thing would be like you either running into battle and just like, you know, and you eat it. Um, Or you working and carrying something really heavy and then you step and you step onto 
your clothes, the whole thing goes over. So girding up your loins was a call uh, to get ready for work or get ready for battle even. And he says, gird up your, your mind loins is kind of the way that he writes it, is there are things within your brain and within your mind and even to take it deeper, within your, your whole being that, that, that restrict and inhibit and get in the way of free movement in the direction of the work that he's, gonna, that he's about to call us to. So therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, you get ready to work. And the first thing you gotta do, gird up your mind loins. Pull up anything that would get in the way that would restrict movement in the direction of where you're going. He says not only to, uh, to gird up your mind loins, but also to be sober-minded, to clear out that which impairs or distracts or blurs. Now, this sobriety he talks about, this can be explicit uh, in a command to uh, move away from substances which impair us from being present to the moment, whether good moments or bad moments. But it can also implicitly lie in us being self-controlled and sober-minded in the habits in which we live in each day. As Mother Teresa said, one of the greatest problems within our spirituality is not that most of us are bad, it's just that we're busy is that we are inebriated on distraction after distraction. And so any movement in the direction that Peter wants to call us to, some of us, we need to repent of genuine sin and things going on within our lives. Some of us just need to like sit down and be quiet for a little bit and begin to process through what God's calling us to. And so what he calls us to is this girding up uh, your loins, preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded. It's, you know, it's medication, you, know, you have certain medicine that says you know, may cause drowsiness. Like, do not operate heavy machinery. Like, don't go drive your car. Like, don't do this right now. What he's getting at is, what he's about to set up before us is it's work, and it's a labor that he's gonna set up. So he says, get ready for work, and then what's the work? He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's the hard work we have to prepare our minds and, and be sober in our minds for? Setting your hope fully. Which is strange, hope being hard work, but especially as exiles, what we've looked at Last week, and even the week before that, is as exiles, we find ourselves in this global casino, that this like cosmic Ikea, in which we have stories and pictures and ways of building our lives that are calling us to set our hope in some other thing. And so to set our hope is, is hard work. Specifically, to set our hope fully is what he says, is, is a very heavy, heavy work. The most of us are comfortable with setting our hope in Jesus and in his revelation, but, but to set it fully, we all, we got like our side hopes, right? That when Jesus isn't giving us what we want, we like hit them up and we're like, hey, side hope, what are you doing? And we go off after these side hopes. And, and, and the, what Peter's calling you to is a full commitment to your hope in Jesus Christ, a whole life that is given to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now hope, again, I feel like I have to hit this on the head every single time we read the word hope. Hope in the biblical writings is not wishing. It is not, like we use hope, hope it rains like tomorrow, or hope it doesn't rain, I hope they call me back, I hope the Dodgers get to the World Series this year. Like all of this, I love you, it's okay, it's okay, we're here for you. Um, Biblical hope is not hope in the future because it's, it's something that's grounded on a historical precedence. It has a past premise for it. Hope in the future is an expectation for what's coming based off what's happened in the past. 
Which again is why he's saying, therefore, in light of the resurrection of Jesus, in light of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Easter Sunday is not a a bunny day, but it's when we're remembering the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In light of that, fully set all of your hope and all of your longing and all of your expectation on the grace that Jesus has for you and will be given to you in full at his revelation. So this isn't just kind of like, I hope Jesus comes back one day because this kind of stinks. He's saying, we have historical grounding for our expectation to be put in that. And what that calls for is a full, all of you hope set in that person and work. But what does that look like? He continues in saying that it looks like holiness. Look with me in, in verse 14 where he says, He shows that that hope is not just an internal feeling. It's an embodied act of life. He says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Hope looks like new life where we live as obedient children, specifically of God. This isn't like a call for like us to obey our parents, although like I would love more verses in the Bible to, to put on my toddler about that. But she can't even, she just can't read. Um, but he calls back to what he said in verse uh, three of chapter one, where he talks about the fact that we have been uh, born again by God to be his children. And so he says, therefore, in light of that reality, live as obedient children, not conformed or, or living within the mold or the pattern of your former passions and desires, your ignorance one author reflects on this, this idea of former ignorance as being a spiritual insensitivity to God. Another way of saying this is no longer conformed to the desires and the passions of your former stories. Living in a way that's shaped by whatever story you got as a kid, whatever story uh, comes across that you were living in for years before you met Jesus. Whether that's individualism or or some kind of perfectionism, consumerism, some kind of hope and salvation in the form of your career or sexuality, whatever that might be, Peter's calling for you. You are no longer a person shaped by those stories. You have a new story that's been spoken over you, one where you know the creator God as father. And what it looks like to not be conformed to the passions, but we're conformed to something else. Look at me in verse 15, he says. But as he who called you is holy. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, all your way of life. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So new life, hope, looks like for Peter, holiness where your conduct and your way of life, it is holy. This word that now is just like thrown around for whatever reason. Holiness, it is set apart. It is distinct. It is uh, different. It is unique. There is a weight to this being or this person that you have this sort of way of life. But notice in verse 15 that it begins with first and foremost seeing God as holy, but as he who called you is holy that we see God as, as holy first and foremost. We can never work on ourselves being holy or walking in holiness unless we see God that way. The creator God who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ is not one God of many. He's among the pantheon of our Western pluralistic culture where pick a God and just kind of see how it works for you. To see God as holy is that he alone has the sole, like the, the sole hope of life and resurrection and flourishing and happiness and joy. 
We have to see him as holy, as perfect. That the creator God is the one who calls us, is what he says, and is saving us and loving us, that he's righteous and good. And I mean, he's, he's the guy that hung the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> there is something so uniquely different about him. And when we hear and receive his calling to know him as father, we want to be like him. Some of you remember back to your own childhood or those of you that um, uh, have the, the blessing uh, of having young children. Uh, what, what, and there's this abounding desire that you and I all had at some point in our lives most likely. Or even you, you see within your little ones right now this desire to be like mom and dad. We're like putting on the parents' shoes, or we're, we're, dress, we're, we're wearing mom's dress and dancing in the living room, or we've got dad's ties or whatever it is. We want to talk like dad. We want to walk like mom. We want to be like them. We've seen this within our daughter, and I remember even having this within my dad, this weird desire to be like our parents. And, and Peter's simply just saying, do you guys remember the story of what God has done in adopting you? That you are now a daughter of the living God. You are a son of of the God who knows you and loves you and has come to save you. And the invitation in that is not just to know him as some distance God, but, but to, to put his shoes on, <laughs> to wear his shirt, oversized as it may be, and walk around the living room and be like him. And so the question for us is, what am I to do? Peter says, be like the holy God who calls you his beloved child. Now, side notes on this that, that abound, because we could do a whole sermon here, but when, when hol- holiness that Peter speaks of is in the same way that our hope um, and salvation is something that uh, will happen, is happening, and has happened, that holiness itself also lives within this dimension, is that somehow, like Paul or Peter opened the letter and talking about how we've been sanctified in the Spirit, that means we've been made holy in the Spirit. You are holy. Regardless of what your week looked like, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are now presently in God's eyes holy. And at the future revelation of Jesus, you will be fully holy and morally perfect. All of the things that you feel like you keep wrestling with and you can't get over, those will be no more and you will be perfect, set apart, distinct. And yet what Peter's calling us into is the holiness that's happening right here and right now. And so what this looks like is not moral perfection, but how do these two, the beginning and the end of your holiness story, look like right here in the middle? And so what that does not mean is moral perfection. I am not calling us this week to like, let's all, you know, clench our fists and we're all going to be holy this week. We're all going to be perfect. We just turn to like Ned, Ned Flanders, like, hi, diddly ho, neighbor. Uh, that's not what I'm calling us to. And that's not what Peter's calling us to. It's not a faking it till you make it or some kind of hypocrisy of pretending that we're something that we're not. That's the opposite of holiness. Holiness is living in light of what has happened and what will happen. And so when we even mess up, when you sin, when you, when you say, when you think, when you do something that is not holy, that repentance is what holiness looks like. Some of us set such a high bar for ourselves of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so you wake up and you've got the best of intentions on Monday. And by the time you get to Wednesday night, you're just like, I don't even know why I'm following this guy. I just can't seem to get it right. The invitation of holiness is not one of browbeating perfection, but rather one where we walk in the delight of the God who calls us father. And we want to be like him when we grow up. And even when we trip and fall, we get up and we keep moving. Because, again, we're looking for a holiness that what it looks like here in the in-between time. 
I could keep going on, but all that to say, holy people aren't perfect, they're repentant. And that's what, that's what he calls us into. But Peter not only calls us to be holy, but he does it twice, back to back in this verse, the second time through quoting Leviticus 11.44, which is after Israel was brought out of slavery to Egypt, stories of them as slaves. God calls them to be holy and gives them the new story that they are now a nation of priests to the world, that through them, the people of the world would see what God is like. And Peter says that plan hasn't gone anywhere but it's meant its fulfillment in you and me now. Later on, he's gonna talk about our conduct, our holiness in front of a watching world so that they may glorify God. So Peter continues detailing uh, the holiness. Look with me in verse 17, where he says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so he says, the holy God who calls us to be holy, though we know him as our adopted fathers. The apostle Paul would reflect on that we know God as Abba, this Aramaic of Papa or Daddy. Although we know God in this intimate level, Peter says the gospel does not turn God into a cosmic like Werther's grandpa. Do any of you guys remember those commercials? No? I'm not that old. <laughs> guys, we're like the same age. Uh, so there were all these commercials of... Um, of the Werther's, like little butterscotch snacks, and they're always the Werther's grandpa. And he was like the most like docile, like just like grandpa that just like sat in the chair, the kid ran up, and like all, the only like interaction between grandpa and the kid was just like, he like popped out the little Werther's mint, gave it to the kid, and the kid like ran off to like go, you know, beating up his brother or whatever. Um, there is, there is a, a, a strict warning that I feel like we need that, that there was generation that was so heavily deep on like the fear of God and the awe and reverence of God that we like swung off into the other ravine, which is God is just like this cosmic Werther's grandpa who makes no claims on your life and is just like this like like cuddle bug that you're just like, well, God, he's just like, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, right? There's the evidence of that. Peter reminds us that there is a tension to be lived in within the two, that God is the close Abba, and that in him there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And yet for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we will stand before God, not in condemnation, but to make an account for what we did with our lives. There's something to be done here, and there's a tension to be lived in, and it's easier to go to one side or the other, which is like God hates you, but I guess you can come along, or this one where God makes no claims on your life and is okay with you just kind of messing everything up and, and pointing people to a, a poor version of who he is. So he says we have to live in a healthy sense of awe and reverence for who he is. And so what we do is conducting ourselves within a time of uh, this exile is what he says. What do we do? Well, this is crazy. So to save on time, 18 uh, through uh, all the way down into 21. Here's what's crazy what he does. Even in the midst of all the commands on holiness, Peter pauses as a good pastor and reminds everybody again of the story that he just told us like a few verses ago. It's crazy. He's like, the whole thing is like, Jesus Christ, who God is saving you through and loves you and he's redeeming you. And so you no longer are slaves, but now you are his people. And so you guys be holy. Like you guys just kind of be like him, okay? And, and why? Because Jesus loves you. And this is what he's doing. Like he situates the commands right between these two things. This is a great reminder where, again, your stories are the scripts for your life. Peter is saying, I, we cannot get down on some holiness track, and then you have you guys forget this. And so he teaches and preaches the gospel once again right here. And so here's the practical for you this week. 
The practical thing, you want to grow in holiness? Start here. Preach the gospel to yourself. Start your morning, and even if it's like, you know, the shower or whatever, coffee, you just do what Peter does right here. Reflect over what God has done. Remind yourself of the story of who you are and just like watch holiness just begin to kind of trickle in throughout your life. Tony Morita, the way he breaks it down, if you want to write these down, you don't have, this isn't like scripture. Start your morning reflecting on your relationship with Jesus. That's the big one. Here out of this passage is what one way you can do it. Is one, you can uh, first start by reflecting on the pointlessness of your former life. This word he uses of futility, it's the language of smoke or a vapor. It's pointlessness. It's useless, right? It's a, a Microsoft Zoom. It's, it's empty. It's a, it's a paperweight. Some of you guys remember those. Um, the, what he gets at is first and foremost to reflect on the pointlessness of your former life. Where did you come from? The former stories, to reflect on where those stories were leading you and what those got you. Whether those were actually handed down by your mother or father or they've been picked up along the way. To first start and go, gosh, those stories were so stupid and just futile and useless. Why in the world would I go back to those? So start with the pointlessness of your former life. Then reflect on the uh, price the price of your freedom. He uses this language of ransom. It's what would happen with a slave who was bought out of, uh, a ran- out, of, out of their slavery, usually with gold or silver. But Peter says, you have been, the slavery you had to the, the feudal ways, the, the old stories, that you've been bought out of those. Specifically, not with gold or silver, but with this precious blood of Jesus. The apostle Paul says that you were bought at a cost, therefore glorify God with your bodies. So he says, you were bought, start with the morning and just go, and I'm not calling for us to like wake up and just like think we've got to watch like Passion of the Christ while we're having our morning coffee. That's not what I'm saying at all. All I'm saying is just reflect on the deep love that God has for you and the lengths that he went to to redeem you out of the stories that you've been a part of. Next, obviously, one of the most important is the person of the gospel. This is like Tony Morita, all the alliteration. Pointlessness of our former life, the price of our freedom, the person of the gospel. Jesus, the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, made manifest in the last times for your sake. The Christ, the way of the anointed king of God and this lamb whose precious blood was spilt so that like the Passover lamb was able to cover over the people of Israel from the wrath of God. That Jesus' blood is covered over us to spare us not only from the wrath of God, but the stupidity of our old stories. The one who is holy when we weren't or couldn't be the one who made us and loved us and he is redeeming us and making us holy. Just spend a few minutes each day. You can pledge allegiance to King Jesus in the morning with your coffee if you want. And then remind yourselves the purpose of the gospel. That you, like he says, that your faith and hope are in God. That your faith, your allegiance, your trust. Where is my ultimate faith? It's in the God who saved me through Jesus Christ. Where is my only hope in life and death? It's in the God who loves me and knows me and has saved me through Jesus. And so as you go through your day, all the other stories, you can laugh at the advertisements, right? When like you see the Casper mattress and someone that looks so restful and you begin to think, that's what I need is I need the Casper mattress because that's what will give me rest. And you're able to go back to where you spent that morning. Oh yeah. Like even if I'm asleep, that's where Paul's able to say like, I've learned to be content in everything. Is all the other stories of the world just 
have no value anymore. Casper mattresses all the way to the desire to be married or the desire for your marriage to be better or for your kids to listen. Whatever story that you put your hope in, if you just, a few minutes in the day, it's crazy. Now, if this seems a bit strange or religious or whatever, I'll just say this. You are getting revealed to thousands and thousands of advertisements, all stories every single day. I don't think it's crazy to just remind yourself of what's true before you go out and face the brunt of those stories. So we talked about holiness. We talked about why to be holy, even practical ways right now to be holy. Now, how do we develop holiness? What does that even look like? And let's just look as we close this out. Where what he says holiness looks like is this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another with a sincere heart. So what does holiness look like? Some of us think Ned Flanders. Some of us, whatever you think, it's the Pope. It's isolation. It's we're all gonna go live out in the woods by ourselves. Whatever you might think holiness looks like, for Peter, love is defined, or holiness is defined as love. Notice he says this, your souls have been purified. They've been made holy by your obedience to the truth, your faith and hope in God for, that is a purpose statement, you to have sincere family love, so love one another from a pure heart. Holiness throughout the Bible is sometimes talked about as sexuality. It's talked in terms of our worship to other gods. Here, Peter says, holiness looks like the community of love. This community. What separates us from the rest of the world? Jesus says, you will know, people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So what this means is that a relationship with God and holiness is not an individual matter. It belongs and operates and exists within this community. And in a day and age where love has lost its meaning, because I can say I love pizza and I love coffee in the morning and I love my wife, I can say the whole gamut of things. Love has lost its meaning. And what Peter is talking about is not warm, fuzzy, inward feelings or friendship over talking about coffee in the room while we're doing teardown together, although it includes those things. And it may. What the love he's talking about is this righteous community that's been forged in the work and word of Jesus Christ, which is just what he says in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, it's strange. Like, why, why not just say, like, you guys should love one another because the God that you serve, he is love. It's just, why start talking about the, the Bible well, the helpful thing is just there. The, the helpful thing for me this week was the since you, um, the, the translation, it should be since y'all um, in the Greek. It's, it's plural. And so the reason for us to love one another is because we together, look around the room right now, have been born again to a living hope that everything that we feel like separates us or divides us or makes you over here and me back here, everything that does that He says that is, um, it's like grass. But there's a living and abiding word, the gospel that has been preached to us that unites us as a people and therefore love is the only response to one another because we know the ransom that they were purchased with as well. And so what does this look like? He says in verse uh, one of chapter two, so then put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. 
and we're over on time, but this is, this is it. What does love look like? It looks like getting rid of the things that get in the way of love. We can do a word study and all these little things, and I have the notes for it, but whatever. It's just what gets in the way of a loving community? The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And P- Peter just says, get rid of anything that gets in the way of that. And that this is your holiness. You want to be a distinct community on the west side of L.A.? Love each other without hypocrisy. Be the sort of people that are sincere. That we're not, we're not envious for your promotion or the fact that you got this job or you live in this neighborhood. You be united in a deep love where we celebrate one another in light of what God has done for each other. And so Peter says holiness looks like love and love has no place for these things. So how do we put off these things? Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in salvation. So how do we put on love and put off these things? He calls us to crave, to long for this pure spiritual milk. And uh, everybody argues about what this is because he's not explicit. Um, Based off the context of what we've been talking about, I think he's talking about the word. He's talking about the Bible. He's saying long for and crave, and I love the idea of its food, that it's not just you studying the Bible, but you, it's a banquet that you feast on, and it's, it's feeding you. That you enter into this sort of life of, of, of nursing, for lack of a better word, at, at what the word is telling us, the story of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and allow this to grow you up into salvation. That the community of faith is a people who are not just born by the word again, but also grown by the word. And this is why at Collective, our discipleship you know, circle that we have is throughout the week doing personal study of the word, hearing a teaching on the word, and then talking about it in discipleship. The whole idea is that we would hopefully move in the direction not of just studying the Bible from a distance or hearing it, but that we would ingest it and digest it, and it would become the energy for our lives as we move into the people that are holy. And then he ends in verse three, that all of this can only happen and flow from if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Love comes from holiness, and holiness can only come out of hope. As we began with uh, everyone's favorite Scottish philosopher, we can only answer the question, what am I to do if I answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? Fake holiness, fake love, these come out of areas of our lives where we are living into another story. That's what hypocrisy grows out of when we're trying to be holy without hope. Apart from tasting that the Lord is good, through the gospel, the living hope that we have through Jesus, through Christ, who God raised from the dead and gave him glory for our sake, so that your faith and hope are in God. All of that, without that, this love thing is is a waste of time. This holiness thing is a waste of time. It ends in legalism or dead religion, but holiness and love that flow from a deep, delight in the God who is redeeming and saving and healing this world, that holiness then is not legalism or religion. It is living loyalty to the ruling and reigning king of the universe. And more than that, it's us walking around the house in our father's shoes or our mom's dress as we live into a sort of life that is shaped and crafted by us wanting to be like our father when we grow up. We take on the identity and behavior of someone who's shaped by our father and we look like our big brother, Jesus. Verse 
And so why don't we pray?